This morning we are continuing on in our series in the book of Galatians. We're in the second half of the book now. We come to chapter 5 this morning. And, and if you're new here, my name is Morgan. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. But we're excited this morning to have speak and, and give our message today. Uh, one of our elders, a member of our elder team, Dr. John Lloyd. John is fantastic. He is a superhero by day and by night. Uh, but he is a neonatologist. That's his day job. But John is an active, incredible leader in this church. Some of you know him as some of you probably don't but John leads consistently with excellence with energy he prays he teaches he instructs he's a support and a lead and he's does an incredible job giving this church leadership and focus and direction and, and, and a ton of the stability that you all experience today is because of his life and his wife Aaron Day's uh, input is invaluable as well too together they have five amazing children and so this morning we're going to welcome and honor him would you guys please cheer him as he comes we love you Dr. John Thank you very much. I can truly say that there's no place I'd rather be. Um, my work schedule has me work on Sundays a fair bit, and um, I always miss not being able to be here, because whenever I'm here with you, it's, it's family. It's family, and God shows me so many deep, rich things about me and who He is and how He wants me to be a father and how He wants me to take care of those He's entrusted to me, and so I thank you for being here. Uh, yesterday, I had the opportunity to drop off my middle school girl at the uh, uh, church as they're preparing to go to camp this week, and I just want to say this is an amazing church filled with amazing people who are willing to cram themselves in vans and a truck and drive with 30 middle school kids to the middle of nowhere. Oh, dear God, I want to lift up Des and Connie and Dee and Taz and Drea and Jeff. And I'm forgetting somebody, you know, I saw, and Eric was there. Dear God, let's, we just, when you go home today, pray for them. I was bringing my daughter here to drop her off, and just that trask alone was enough to just undo her. We had forgotten this and that and the other and literally was a 13-year-old blubbering ball of just emotion in the front of the car. But I wiped her feet off because they had sand on them. And we put her shoes on. And she found the necklace she was looking for. And then everything was okay. And so she got in the van and she was perfectly fine. <laughs> Speaking of that 13-year-old girl, you know what, what she got me for Father's Day this year? If, if, you, if you know me, imagine the one thing that not only would I not think to ask for it, but that I wouldn't even know what to do with it. It's one of those little sticks that you hold your phone with that, that, that you take pictures of yourself with, right? right? Wouldn't you imagine that's exactly what I need, right? Sort of reminds me of when I bought my wife's Ranger season tickets for her birthday. Oh, wait, no. I just wish I did that. I just wish I did that. <laughs> that's right. Now, listen, my wife and I have been here in this church since 2003, um, I had the privilege of serving here with Morgan and Galen, um, and, and I want to talk with you a little bit today about being a father and God's father's heart for you and me. Now, before we get going, I want you to just take a moment and pause and consider. If you had to consider, how does God see me? What does he most want for me? What's his will for my life? How would he 
in his ideal mind, like to see and know me. So I want you to think of something, and then you have to remember it for later in the, in the, in the message, and, and we'll talk about that. But before I get going, uh, as I said, my wife and I have been here since 2003. Now, we moved here with one doughy little 18-month-old girl who I put in the truck and she drove away yesterday. But God then added four boys to our household in about a a two-and-a-half-year period of time. 2004, middle of the year, we had Grayson. About one year later, we had uh, uh, adopted a 12-year-old boy who moved in. And then like a month later, we had Hayes. And then Coco rounded out the set in 2007, the spring of 2007. I don't know if you guys know Jim Gaffigan, but he's got four kids, and, and he's even crazier than we are. He apparently had them at home in an apartment. Um, but he has a joke about having four kids. He says, you know what it feels like to have four kids? He says, imagine you're drowning, and someone hands you a baby. That was our life for years. Now, as you imagine... As you might imagine, when I think back on those years, my heart is filled with lots of things, and my mind has lots of thoughts. Now, Lillian was two, and we had this thing that we like to refer to as the battle of stay in bed. All of the spit-up, the vomit, the dirty diapers, the sleepless nights, innumerable Cheerios glued to our kitchen table with that dried-up milk. I remember Nicholas's 12-year-old baby face, his handsome, strong 18-year-old face. He moved into our house under circumstances we didn't anticipate. He moved out under circumstances that I would not have chosen. All the soccer games, birthday parties, homework assignments. As you might imagine, many rich and deep things sit in my father's heart as we come together to speak this morning. And it's from that perspective that I'd like to spend our time today. You see, the picture of God as our Father is the dominant one in the Scriptures. Whether we like it or not, that is primarily how God has chosen to self-identify. I know that that image causes some challenges for all of us because we all have earthly fathers, and every one of them, no matter how good, was not perfect. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that for most of us, The deepest wounds we are working through today are the wounds of a father. My prayer is that today will help to bring at least some healing to those wounds. Now, as Morgan said, my job during the week is to take care of babies that need an intensive care unit. Now, while we take care of any baby that needs uh, that kind of care, there's a certain subset that really don't have a disease per se. You see, they just came out too early. Some of them way too early. Now, they came for lots of reasons. Some of them because mom's blood pressure was high, and some of them because maybe she had an infection, and some of them we just really don't even know. But come they do. I want us to see this morning that in many ways our earthly fathers are much like neonatologists. And like neonatologists, some fathers are better than others, but all pale in comparison to our Heavenly Father for whom we were designed. You see, all children are like my little one-pound fragile babies that I take care of. Now, if you've ever seen a baby like that, they are unimaginably small. Their hands are unimaginably tiny. Their skin is translucent. 
You can see the blood vessels and even their liver under their or under through their skin. You know, you and I, as we sit out here today, we're all sorts of colors. We're black and, and brown and white, yellow. Babies, though, when they come out, they're all the same color. They're this kind of shiny pink, no matter what their nationality. They're so small that I could put them literally in the palm of my hand. You see, they, weren't exposed, they were not supposed to be exposed to all the things that we expose them to. The oxygen, the ventilators, the IVs. They weren't supposed to have their organs working now, but work they must. Like a father overseeing the growth of his children, the neonatologist steps in to oversee the growth of these most fragile patients. From a certain perspective, caring for these patients is really quite simple. You try and give them the support they need. Don't give them the support they don't need. Touch them as little as you can and hurt them as little as possible, knowing full well the impossibility of that situation because everything we do that saves their life has an unintended consequence. Even touching their skin is potentially damaging to them. The oxygen they breathe is far more than they were supposed to have. And so we know we damage them, but we try and do it as little as possible. You see, like I said before, they don't have a disease. They're just not in the environment for which they were designed. The mother's body is far better without additional resources, education, planning than I could ever hope to be given an unlimited amount of knowledge, experience, and resources at doing my job. They do it way better than I ever could. In the same way, our earthly fathers, even with the best of intentions, let alone when they are absent or abusive, are inadequate substitutes for the father environment for which you and I were designed. Now, as we lay these wounds at the cross, we should do so with the hope and the encouragement that unlike the babies for whom I care, we can be placed into the father environment for which we were designed. We can be put back into the environment that we were made for. And even more, we're not just allowed to be placed back in that, but we were invited back in there. We were invited with a, the, the most costly invitation ever written. For you see, it was written in the blood of a Savior who died for us that we might live. It was written that you and I might be brought back into the Father environment and be able to stand as sons and heirs before our Abba, Father. With that said, how do you think God's Father's heart is oriented to, to you? Now, have you ever wondered that? I'm sure you have. But today, I hope that we will be able to see that God has a powerful and a, and a big vision for you as your Father. And I pray that we will fundamentally have some of those misconceptions or pains that we carry with us about our earthly fathers healed. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to take a moment to illustrate my point. And I don't see... Barnabas, they're in the family room, okay. So I'm going to pick on B today here, okay? Even better that he's not in here. So one of the blessings of doing this sort of at the last minute is that I didn't get to tell him I was going to talk about him today. 
Now, I can think of a half dozen manly men who are new fathers that I could use. But I'm going to pick on B because for some mysterious reason, in my photo album on my phone, these pictures of the Willis family just magically appear. Now, when I say the Willis family, that's not exactly right, see, because it's, it's not really the Willis family, it's, it's Bethany. That's who's at the center of all the pictures, all the videos, and, and Yolanda and Barnabas, they provide a little co- comic foil, they are also a source of unadulterated adoration, and then Br- Bethany is the star. I was at work this week, clicking through some of these things, seeing the latest little pictures, and one of them just had me rolling. It's, it's Barnabas, this big strapping manly man, sitting there, and all you see is his hand going back and forth like this. And he's spooning avocado into that little precious person there. But all, what, what got me was Barnabas going, avocado, avocado. And, and, and Yolanda's going, love me some avocado, avocado. The next video has Bethany doing nothing but this. All the to, to the delights of their parents. Now, it's been 13 years since I was able to revel in the delight of a squawk or a babble, and, and I was just about to throw down the man card judgment on Barnabas for, for, for being so silly in the sight of that little baby. And, and I really, literally have this thought in my mind and in my heart. Sorry, Barnabas. And I click on one that's just a black screen, and I'm fully expecting to see another video of Bethany doing something else. But instead... What do I see? It's my daughter standing on a stage singing at her school. And immediately, I'm transferred back to a time when I remember the squawking little baby and the delight I took in every poopy diaper and everything she did, which was new and different that I'd never seen before as a new father. Because you see, the joy that filled my heart and made my eyes swell and, 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 and filled me with such joy in that moment of seeing my daughter had nothing to do with the singing that she was doing. No more than Barnabas really took joy in the feeding of avocado. But it was taking joy in the fact that they're our children. We love them. Our hearts are big for them. Now, as we talk about this message today and consider God's Father's heart for you and me, I want you to consider it from the perspective that this isn't, I didn't say any of this to tell you that B and I are great dads because I've been a father long enough to know that I've hurt every single one of my kids. When I'm tired and I can't fight through it or when I'm distracted and I can't fight through it, I can't pay attention to the right things. I hurt my children because I speak out of anger, I speak out of frustration. But merciful God has blessed me and covers up so many of my father foibles. But I'm not perfect. And so my my point of that story is really to get to what Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you being evil men can give your children good gifts, how much more, how much more, Does your heavenly Father 
have the ability to give you good gifts. Now, I know there are those who, in even hearing this story, there are twinges of pain at the performance or lack thereof of their own father in their lives. And so my encouragement as we press into this today is to hold on to the truth that if Barnabas and I are willing to lay down our dignity because of love for our children, how much more does your heavenly Father, the one for whom you were designed, have for you if he was willing to lay down not his dignity, but his life on the cross for you and I, that we might have relationship with him, that we might really know him. That is God's heart for you today. As we get into our passage, I'm going to read our scripture from which I'll speak today. It's Galatians 5, 1 to 15. And I'm going to read a little more slowly this time for translation purposes. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, for you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, remember when I asked you to think of a word or a phrase that best characterizes how God thinks about you, what God's Father's heart is for you or towards you? Now, I don't have a way to do it, but I suspect if I could project everybody's thoughts up here, they would have been a lot like mine before I got to this passage. You know, there are things that come to mind like, like God would want me to be happy or secure. He would, he would want me to, to be strong. He would want me to be productive. Or, or better yet, maybe you could go to some of the fruits of the Spirit. He would want me to have love or joy or peace or patience or kindness. You know, we, we may go to the Westminster Catechism from, you know, the 17th century that would say, you know, what is the chief end of man? It is to know God and to enjoy Him. 
Now, those are good answers, and the Westminster Catechism answer is a, has been a bedrock of Christianity for hundreds of years. But I think Paul today is giving us a more fundamental answer than even those things. He is telling us that God fundamentally desires freedom for you and me. Our passage begins with a clear and powerful statement of Christ's will for our lives. Now, sometimes you and I get bogged down in a quandary about God's heart for me or yourselves. On one hand, we worry about God and we worry about the the will He has for us with respect to all these secondary things. Where will I go to school? Where am I going to live? Should I get married? If so, to whom? Or on the other, we go to this, this idea that God's heart for us is, is sort of like this cosmic curmudgeon who sits up there and says, don't do that, and don't do that, and, and don't do that, which just feels like, a, like a, a, a weight on our shoulders. Now, what I want us to do is to stand fast on the truth that we know clearly presented in the Scriptures in defiance of our feelings at moments and stand in the truth that God's fundamental desire for you and me today is that we might be free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom has both, is both the action and the end. Christ's will for you and me is that we enjoy freedom. The person you marry, what job you do, where you live, are not nearly so crucial as whether we stand fast in the freedom that God has called us to. If they were, the Bible would have had direct commandments about where to live or how do you choose your spouse exactly or what kind of job you should have. But it doesn't. So your enjoyment of freedom, my enjoyment of freedom, is much more important to God than the many of our day-to-day worries, such as where I'm going to live or who I'm going to marry or what I'm going to do. Do we, as a litmus test, spend as much time worrying about, not worrying, pressing into the, the, the Spirit of God with respect to the truth of what He has me to walk in with respect to my freedom, as we do about our jobs or our, our spouses or our children, even great things. Like, again, I mentioned the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace. They're wonderful things, but not as foundational for you and me as the freedom that God calls us to walk in. Because if we are to truly enjoy something or someone or to truly love them, it can only come in the freedom that God's Word provides for us in the form of Jesus Christ. It cannot be demanded. It cannot be coerced. But must be freely given if it is to be real. There is nothing He wills more for you and me under the intensity and the glory of His own name than this, your freedom. Uncompromising, unrelenting, indomitable freedom. For this Christ died. For this He rose. For this He sent His Spirit. And fundamentally, that is His will for you and me today. Now, as we press forward again with the rest of our time, I want to see a number of things about the freedom that God calls us to walk in. I want us to see that God's freedom is shocking. God's freedom is fertile soil for our lives. And then last, I want us to see that God's free li- uh, freedom is stabilizing for our lives. God's 
freedom is so free for you and me that if we rightly understand it, it's shocking. All through the scriptures, God shows up again and again as a liberator, as one who sets the captive free. God provides a symbolic freedom for Isaac in the form of a ram. He imprisons and then promotes Joseph for the purpose of freedom. God liberates the secondborn, the barren woman, the foreigner, and the outcast all through the scriptures. God shows up again and again as the one who provides freedom from prisons that come in all shapes, sizes, and forms. You see, Galatians is Paul's Magna Carta of the freedom we all have available to us in Christ. And the first verse of this chapter is its epicenter. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He then goes on to complete that thought in the next verse by saying, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Throughout this book, Paul is repeatedly telling the Galatians to not fear any condemnation because of their inability to keep the law. Because they are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Talk about radical, shocking freedom. Neither the strictest religious moralism or licentious amoralism count for anything. They are both equally useless because they both trace back to you and me. And they're representations of our fear, of our insecurities, of our inabilities. You see, in that, dia- in, in that uh, uh, picture, you and I are responsible for setting the boundaries. You and I are s- responsible for setting the rules. And ultimately, we're the ones who has to pay the bill. But you see, it's a bill we can't pay. Apart from Christ, we have fallen away from grace. All human thought and action unless bound to the person of Christ, is ultimately enslaving. Let that settle on you. Think about all the things we do, even great things, wonderful things. My work in the hospital trying to take care of patients, the the work that we do in government, the work we do uh, with with social causes, the work we do in our home, raising our children or husbanding uh, husbanding our wives being a mother, being a father, all these great things. But if Paul's to be to believe, the, free, the only freedom we can walk in, the only power we can walk in, is when all those things that we're doing are an outflowing of the freedom that you and I walk in in Jesus Christ. If we accept circumcision, Christ is of no value. The moment we add anything to or take anything away from the gospel of Jesus, Jesus leaves the picture. This costly grace, this freedom in Christ has been so shocking throughout church history that it has constantly been under attack by people who have sought to add requirements to it for fear that people would abuse the freedom that comes in Christ. Paul shows us in Galatians that the gospel freedom that he writes about from fear and condemnation, leads us not to disobey or to amoralism, but it leads us to the only kind of moralism that is actually possible. It changes our heart and changes us on the inside and produces the fruit that moralism never could. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. That leads us to the next thought. Those fruit of the Spirit... I want us to see that they grow in the fertile soil of God's freedom for you and me. 
You see, Paul is setting up a very clear dichotomy for the Galatians and for us here today. Everything we do or think is either of the flesh or of the spirit. Things of the flesh are slavery, and things of the spirit are free and true and right and alive as God intended us to be alive. You and I are like trees that will either bear the fruit of slavery or the fruit of the spirit of freedom that we have been called to walk in. You see, immediately following this passage that we're looking at here today, Paul goes on to talk about the fruit of the flesh and the the very well-known nine fruit of the spirit. I want us to see here this morning that the soil that produces the fruit of the spirit is the gospel freedom that can be found only in Christ. We must also remember the truth that you and I are designed in the image of God and are at a minimum free to choose between his freedom for us and slavery and that we will be planted in a soil of one or the other, that we will draw nourishments as we go about our daily lives from one or the other, and we cannot help but bear fruit. That's what trees do. And our choice, though, today is which soil are we going to allow to produce the fruit in our hearts? The fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit that will produce freedom in us? Next, I want us to see that Paul completes this thought by saying that not only is is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision valuable, but only faith working through love. Now, what Paul is saying is that neither the act of circumcision or the lack of the act of circumcision counts for anything, but only faith in the gospel of Jesus conducted through love. Now, it is faith that nourishes us to life, and it is through love, the love of our Father, that we are given and receive that faith. Now, in this way, love is both a root and a fruit On the tree of our lives. This fruit is nourished only in the free soil of the Spirit that God has designed our tree to be planted in. Love as a root is the love of God for us as He sent His Son as our Savior into which we must be grafted. See, His roots are there, they're available for us. The question is are we going to graft ourselves into the roots? of God's love for us in the soil of freedom that Christ came and died for. You see, this then produces the only valuable, eternal fruit in our lives. The fruit of this tree is produced only in the soil of freedom. This is the Father love for which you and I were designed. You see, the picture Paul's painting here is so powerful. You know, you and I are going to be trees in this picture no matter how we, how we, what, what choices we make. You see, we start out as a, free, uh, as a tree planted in the soil of the flesh, and it's enslaving us. Jesus came that we might be replanted, or as he says to Nicodemus in John 3, to be reborn into the soil of the Spirit. Now, the soil there is freedom. And this is God's perfect Father's heart desire for us. It's His design for us. For within the freedom of Christ, we find the nutrient of faith 
that is available as I am grafted into the roots of His love for me. This then produces the fruit of the Spirit on my branches and allows me to live in the stable and secure fullness of the destiny that God has for me. It is only in this way that I can truly be alive. And as we'll see with this last point, it's only there that you and I can be truly stable and secure and have a peace that passes understanding in a way that God calls us to and the way He designed us. You see, Paul does warn us about potentially destabilizing influences around us. The truth is, you and I are destructible. The first warning comes in the first verse when he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. After that powerful declaration of freedom, one might be tempted to think that this freedom we have in Christ is unassailable. But Paul, like a good father, is able to look further downfield and warns us immediately of the need for us to stand firm and to not submit to slavery that lies all around us. You see, this is a military phrase that really conjoins a number of ideas. It's the idea of keeping alert, of being strong, of resisting attack, of sticking together. Timothy Keller, in his excellent book, Galatians for You, puts it like this. He says, despite the fact that we already have been saved by Christ, we must be continually diligent to remember, preserve, rejoice in, and live in accord with our salvation. We cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose our freedom from enslavement to fear. Now, while there's a caution for us to not lose focus, there is also the surrounding reality and the deep riches of the truth of the freedom that exists for us in the gospel that provides security for us as nothing else can. When Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, he is saying that I am no more right with God when I perform well, and I am no more hopeless when I perform poorly. Think back to that picture of, of me and Barnabas with our children. God sees us and loves us, has a heart for us, irrespective of our behavior. All are equally lost, yet all are also equally within reach of salvation. Stated another way, there is nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. That idea is transformational. That is the power of freedom that comes only in the Spirit of God. It is that truth, that power of God applied to my heart and yours that 2,000 years ago swept the Mediterranean basin and changed history forever. That same truth is available for you and me today and is powerful to change any circumstance that we find ourselves in. If we go to a parallel passage of Galatians 5 and found in Romans 8, where we see Paul again expounding on the interplay between the idea of flesh and spirit and freedom that's available to us in the spirit, He starts out boldly in the first verse with, There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, for, you sh- for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are slaughtered, slaughtered as sheep. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The point of our freedom in Christ is that we might live as He intended us to live. As we draw in faith from the roots of His love, From Jesus Christ, in the soil of freedom laid out for us, we will experience life and peace. At the end of our passage, he points out the fruit of the Spirit that most results from correctly growing in the freedom that God called us to. Love for others. Paul also points out at the end the fruit most characteristic of life in the flesh. It's division and contention. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, as I said earlier, I work in an intensive care unit for babies. And I have the honor of walking families through death on a regular basis. Over the last 15 years, I have seen tragedy strike families in more forms than I care to recall. The patients I have the privilege of serving come in all shapes and colors and sizes from the furthest reaches of this city, this country, and even the globe. They call God by many names or not at all and do so in multiple languages. Some are homeless with no ability to even feed themselves, while others are wealthy beyond my imagination. I've cared for the famous, for the infamous, but most are like you and me living non-newsworthy lives. When death comes, it is amazing what he does not notice. You see, he's no minder of language or wealth or fame or even of religion. I've seen beautiful and wealthy and famous people undone with grief and loss and consumed with hopelessness. And I've seen the homeless and disenfranchised Rise up like kings and queens under the weight of grief and loss, filled with hope that passes understanding. I've seen more death than most and know that under the weight of real suffering, not all answers are equal. I spent last week holding a family and walking them through the death of one of their twin girls. Like this precious family, many in here today are hurting some with wounds and pains and anger and unanswered questions from the unimaginable hate tragedy in Charleston, some with questions and confusions about identity from wounds 
inflicted by fathers and mothers that may be so deep they don't even bear words. They have no name. I've seen some maybe in here as parents or children with concerns over health problems they can't see through in family members. Or maybe worse yet, it's salvation that we we desire for a family member. My question for all of us is where will we take our suffering? You see, our Heavenly Father did not spare even His Son in His pursuit of you and, and me and our life with Him. He desires the fertile soil of freedom for you and me that we might be firmly rooted in, this, in His love and then be unshakable during any storm. Let us be people of faith, casting our cares on Him that we might be blown about by the winds of our days, but we will remain firmly rooted and unmoved. As Jeremiah 17 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious about the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. See, brothers and sisters, you and I do not say, as we sang earlier, that God is good all the time because we don't know suffering or pain. We sing it and say it and believe it and hold on to it because we do know pain. We do know suffering. But let's be people of faith and stand up as we sing in just a moment, lifting our hearts with whatever is in there to our Heavenly Father, who desires a freedom for each and every one of us, the freedom of a Father who loves each and every one of us to the point of His own death, to the point of His own exclusion from relationships that He had known from eternity. If He is not willing, if He is, was not unwilling to go to hell to save us and bring us back into relationship with Him, whatever you've got, He will take that there with Him and lift you back up as He rose from the dead walking in a newness of life that you and I were designed for. So please, stand with me. Lift our hearts and our voices to our Creator, God our Father, who desires big, rich, deep things for each and every one of us, that we might walk in the freedom of the life that He has for us. Amen.